Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 141 for the week ending, February 8th, 2019, though we are on the Spotify edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. So, with the Patriots winning yet another Super Bowl, and this week in FCPA now appearing on the Spotify network, Jay and I celebrate by taking a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Uh, Goldman Sachs is considering clawbacks from former executives involved in the 1MDB scandal. What were last year's trends in NPAs and DPAs? How a stupid CEO remark can lead to a new activist investor on your board. Banks in Australia take a really black eye. And uh, there is a continuation of the saga of the theft from the Central Bank of Bangladesh. We take a look at why tennis is so susceptible to corruption, toxic culture in an organization, and we consider whether or not the Department of Commerce violated a federal law in a monitor selection. We discuss my five-part podcast series on disconnected to connected compliance sponsored by GAN Integrity. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for this week in FCPA, episode 141, for the week ending February 8th, 2019. We're on Spotify edition. Jay, uh, I think I heard, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Patriots won the Super Bowl yet again. However, as significant as that may or may not have been, even more significantly, this week in FCPA is now on Spotify. So how does all that sound? Uh, it sounds awesome. Uh, you know, it doesn't get any better than this, Tom. And uh, even though we were distracted by a low-scoring football game last week, the world of compliance ethics and FCPA continues to march on. So if it's okay with you, let's uh, jump right in and take a look at some of the week's biggest stories. You got it. Uh, first of all, in the continuing saga over uh, uh, the Wealth Fund 1MDB, it looks like uh, we've got some reporting from uh, Matthew Goldstein in the New York Times, and there continues to be fallout from Goldman Sachs from this scandal tied to the Mal- Malaysian Investment Fund. And what this could mean is lower pay for some senior executives at the Wall Street Bank. Uh, the board in approving year-end compensation for the current uh, chairman, Mr. Solomon, and for the departed chairman, Mr. Lord Blankfein, have adopted a provision giving it the ability to claw back or reduce 
some of that pay package, depending on the outcome of the federal investigation into the fraud at the One Malaysia Development Fund, known as 1MDB. The investigation represents one of the most significant scandals to hit Goldman in years, and the decision by the bank's board to potentially claw back compensation, which was disclosed in a recent regulatory filing last Friday, reveals a degree of uncertainty within Goldman at how the criminal investigation will shake out. The bank is looking at paying several billion dollars in fines and restitutions, and toward the end of last year, Goldman began setting aside a monetary reserve. One former Goldman banker has already pleaded guilty to federal charges in connection, and a junior banker has been charged. Federal prosecutors have said that at least $2.7 billion, that's with a B, was looted from the fund by people close to Malaysia's former prime minister, Najib Razak, and financier J. Lo, who was charged in the fraud. Goldman was the primary banker for 1MDB and helped sell nearly $6 billion in bonds. Uh, the forfeiture and clawback position could cover about five top and former executives at the bank, said a person familiar. One former executive who was is not covered in this is Gary Kahn, who left the Goldman uh, who left Goldman to join the Trump administration, and he's not affected by this decision because he received a full lump sum payout. So the scandal has threatened to tarnish the tenure of former chairman Lloyd Blankfein, rather, who helped invest, navigate Goldman through the 2008 financial crisis. And unfortunately, Blankfein attended at least one meeting with Mr. Lowe in December 2012. So more to come, but as we like to say, this is one of those stories and cases just that just keeps on giving. Uh, next up, we have an article that uh, comes to us from Law360. Uh, it's by Joseph Warren, Kendall Day, and Melissa Farrar from the law firm Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. And uh, as they usually do on a, a yearly and a half yearly basis, uh, Gibson Dunn does some great analysis about trends happening and all of uh, the, the many legal areas that they are in. And Joe takes a particular interest in trends in DOJ, non-prosecution, deferred prosecution deals. And uh, the client alert cautions that while it's tempting to assume that the change in the presidential administration would lead the U.S. Department of Justice to adopt different, potentially more business-friendly posture and limit its use of available tools for criminal enforcement. A close examination of the DOJ's recent use of corporate non-prosecution agreements and deferred prosecution agreements, however, does not support this conclusion. Uh, in the client alert, there's some graphs and charts, which Gibson Dunn does on a yearly basis, uh, taking a look at uh, the agreements, uh, last year, DOJ entered into 24 agreements in 2018, 13 were non-prosecution agreements, and 11 were deferred, deferred prosecution agreements. And as usual, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, for the second year in a row, issued no NPAs or DPAs, while there were 24 overall agreements in 2018. In addition to the addendum and declination, this exceeds the number of 2017 agreements by two. So while there's 
um, you know, moderate changes in numbers of cases brought from year to year. Uh, it's too soon to know whether or not 2018 is continuation of a trend or simply a challenging year for financial institution. But there are two data points that they want to look at. And um, one of them is if you look at total monetary recoveries for last year, 2018, it was $8.1 billion. And that is the second highest of the last 18 years, with the exception of 2012, which was $9 billion. So overall, the numbers will continue to rise and fall with natural prosecutorial cycle of investigations and resolutions. But recent policy announcements, the methodical activities of the DOJ's fraud unit, and overall monetary recoveries that MPA and DPAs offer likely will secure them as a continuing role in resolving allegations of the corporate crime in years to come. So, Tom, uh, any thoughts on that one? The, um, you know, it was interesting, Jay, that they're they're trying to draw trends uh, for really this administration. And when I was sitting there listening to your recitation, it really struck me at the very end uh, when you went back uh, to talk about the numbers, kind of historical numbers, uh, prosecutions, investigations, and enforcement actions ebb and flow, and they, um, whether the prosecutors or excuse me, whether the polit- uh, political heads of the Department of Justice are Republican uh, or Democrat, um, the phrase used about Rosenstein is that he is he has a lighter touch. And, uh, you know, perhaps that's correct. And perhaps some of the changes he's making will uh, lead to more declinations. But I guess. Uh, as as you and I and and ever others have looked at these numbers uh, since the new administration came in in 2016, I guess I see really not s- substantive information you can draw from. Perhaps if we are having this conversation five years from now, and this trend continues, we could say, uh, you know, this was a year where things changed. But even if we pointed to the year where things changed. That change started 10 years ago, or at least five years ago, uh, when a number of investigations perhaps dropped, when a number of, or conversely, perhaps there were more self-disclosures. Perhaps companies got a little more serious and better about having more effective compliance programs. So it's really difficult to draw, I think, specific um, or synthesize specific information from these numbers because the process itself is so lengthy. you and I are probably no different than most Americans. We look at things in one-year increments and um, you know, try to measure because that's such a an easy metric for most of us to think through. Um, but I guess the more I see these numbers uh, around FCPA enforcement, NPAs, DPAs, uh, declinations, and others, I'm not sure uh, if the conclusions really warrant the numbers from any specific 12-month or other calendar period. Yeah, I I think that's a real good point to add. Uh, Next up, we have an article to us from the Wall Street Journal from Julie Jargon, and this is one of our favorite 
corporate punching bags. Uh, starboard CEO Jeffrey Smith becomes the chairman of Papa John's. So on Monday, uh, Papa John's international stock jumped 1.77% on the news that activist investor Starboard Value LP said it would make a $200 million investment and its chief executive will become the chairman of the pizza chain. The deal caps more than a year of tumult at the struggling pizza company. And Starboard is well known in the restaurant industry for its 2014 board coup at Olive, Parent, Olive Garden Parent Company Darden Restaurants. Um, it also obtained a board seat for Anthony Sanfilippo, former chairman and CEO of casino operator Pinnacle Entertainment. Papa John CEO Steve Ritchie will join the board. Um, as it will not surprise anybody, uh, after uh, Starboard made their offer, uh, our good friend, Mr. John Schnatter, made a competing offer and s said that uh, he would be willing to offer an investment of up to $250 million, but the board of Papa John's uh, determined that Starboard's uh, offer was superior. Um, in a quote, Mr. Ritchie, the CEO, says, we need to be doing a better job at telling the quality story in a more meaningful way. And this deal marks the end of a five-month strategic review that Papa John's has conducted for its business. So I know that Tom Yu and our colleague uh, Amy Barnard-Bond have been speaking a lot about uh, – Papa John's over the last couple months. Uh, any surprises with this announcement? No, Jay. Uh, what I would really like uh, our audience to think about, though, is that um, the uh, John uh, Shatner's uh, co comments of uh, inappropriate comments around racial uh, issues, which led to his ouster, that was not a one-time event. That was not, you know, out of the blue. He says the N word for the first time ever. Uh, that is never the situation. Uh, he had uh, clearly been engaging in inappropriate behavior uh, and, excuse me, inappropriate remarks to colleagues, to subordinates, uh, to others for some period of time. And that was damaging the franchise. It, it, you, if you have your own pizza joint and you're shucking pizzas out of the garage and people love it because uh, you're a great guy and you make great pizzas, you know, you can, you can act like that. But you, when you're the CEO or at least chairman of the board of a multi-billion dollar corporation, uh, you have to be more judicial. You have to um, be more professional. And you can't uh, can't be flippant. And you can't be flippant in a public arena, in a public uh, uh, way. And so the, the damage to Papa John's had been ongoing for quite some time. And the um, uh, drop in stock value, you know, his comments around uh, Kaepernick, uh, and the NFL certainly uh, hurt uh, Papa John's. And the board's actions here really speak to a chairman who had lost his way, uh, was not helping the company, and indeed was hurting the company. What led to his termination uh, was certainly horrific remarks and horrific racial insensitivity. But it wasn't the first time. And it wasn't the first thing he'd done. And he had really devalued uh, the financial value of the corporation uh, through his actions. So 
Uh, it, it didn't surprise me really at all that the company was in the position that it was in and it needed to bring in new money. It needed to bring in someone who could shake things up and uh, really move in a completely different direction. Uh, the I thought the best thing Papa John's did, frankly, Jay, was their ad campaign uh, last uh, last fall. I guess it started really with the Super Bowl sort of last year in the spring, which was they had multiple franchise owners saying, I am Papa John's. And it was a wide variety of male, female, different races, different colors, you know, different looks, different people, great diversity. And their point, I thought, was great, which is each one of those people as a franchisee is Papa John. And they are part of Papa John's and they can take pride in being and they obviously have pride in their stores, their businesses and their work as well. They should. Um, so Papa John's pizza is not John Shatner. It is all of the people who who the franchisors, the franchisor employees, the franchisees, the franchisee employees, all of those. And so uh, it really, uh, I think, um, was I surprised? No. Uh, but it shows how a um, a CEO or a chairman who really loses his way can really uh, damage a company to the point where they have to do something like this. Yeah, great points, Tom. Uh, next up, uh, another, uh, I guess I wouldn't call it recidivist, but I'd say another uh, company that we've spoken about several times over the last couple of years uh, we've got some intriguing analysis of the Wells Fargo scandal. This comes to us from Brian Taylor and the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulation. What are your What are your uh, takeaways from this, Tom? So, Jay, this is going to be the first of three uh, posts that we're highlighting today, which can uh, only be covered under the uh, general heading of bankers behaving badly. And we start off with this initial uh, very interesting, very in-depth study by Brian uh, Tayon, a researcher with the Corporate Governance Research Initiative at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, who um, did a really interesting analysis around the cross-selling problem, which led to the scandal, and then the way it was incentivized. And he really stripped away, I thought, a lot of the hyperbole. Uh, certainly, are you know, are we dealing with bad people? Um, are, are we dealing with idiots? All of those sorts of, unfortunately, uh, valid questions. To take a look at the incentivization. So he looked at things such as was the compensation system, which incentivized cross-selling, um, a uh, incorrect assessment. So was the company using cross-selling as a wrong metric? Um, such things, in, really in the weed things, such as branch-level employees were incentivized to increase their products sales per household, but senior management executive bonuses did not include this metric. So did that disconnect contribute to the failure for senior management to recognizing the problems? Um, the company had a, a very strong written policy around culture and its visions and its values. However, in practice, obviously that uh, did occur as well. So what compromised this culture? The, um, the cross-selling numbers were, you know, relatively small. Uh, I've heard numbers of uh, less than 100 million in his paper. He said it was less than 6 million in direct fees. Well, 
you know, that's like Avon that paid an $8 million bribe and, and lost over $750 million total. I mean, what is, how can a company be uh, cognizant of an amount so small that it, you know, is not material, certainly in a financial analysis, but it um, can become uh, um, so catastrophic in terms of reputational damage. So I was really interested uh, in this. I commend uh, everyone to take a look at it. Uh, it really goes into great detail. And for the compliance practitioner, I think it really uh, gives them a lot of insights to um, incentivization uh, around sales uh, and compliance. Uh, next up, Jay, uh, was just an absolutely scathing report uh, released by the Australian government, a Royal Commission, which looked at the country's banking financial services industries on a countrywide basis and found uh, it was basically just bilking customers. Uh, loan officers, mortgage brokers, and others acted to line their own pockets rather than helping customers. Um, the damage to the individuals, uh, both individual banks and financial institutions, was uh, has been large. Uh, trust is obviously gone. Uh, my favorite line, of course, um, from uh, taking from Monty Python was, uh, bring out your dead because uh, the banks were charging the dead uh, on their account. So um, just uh, uh, horrible conduct by Australian bankers. And it's uh, probably going to lead to some criminal prosecutions and probably going to uh, hurt the uh, financial industry in Australia for some time. And then our third one, Jay, is we're going to have to do a little bit of a history lesson here, uh, if we could for a moment. So, Jay, this next story deals with the uh, stunning bank heist from the Central Bank of Bangladesh. And this happened, uh, I think, in 2015. And for those who, uh, excuse me, February 2016. But for those who may not remember, the central bank of uh, there was a request sent through the SWIFT system to the U.S. Federal Reserve for over one billion dollars to be transferred from the account of the central bank of Bangladesh here in the United States to a corresponding bank in the Philippines. Um, <clears throat> fortunately, only 81 million was actually stolen, but of course this was a massive fraud, and it was a well-executed fraud. The faxes, uh, inst instructions sent from Bangladesh to the United States were sent on a um, Friday afternoon here in the United States, um, uh, excuse me, on a Thursday afternoon from Bangladesh. So they got there Friday morning. Friday in Bangladesh is their weekend. So when the U.S. asked for a confirmation, uh, there was no one there to uh, respond, even even uh, more so the <clears throat> when the U.S., sent faxes uh, requesting the confirmation. The thieves had uh, been able to uh, kill off the uh, fax line so that um, the faxes never went through. And of course, since no one was there, when the uh, notice light uh, was blinking, no one saw it. And when uh, the Bangladeshi Central Bank went back to the office starting their work week on Sunday and saw the problem and got all the faxes, uh, then contacted the U.S. Fed. Well, of course, it was Sunday here, and the money had already been wired out. So it was a massive fraud. Uh, really, uh, you really can't make that stuff up uh, because uh, fiction has to be based in reality. And fortunately, only 81 of the billion dollars 
You got it. So this was the massive fraud. Well, now the Central Bank of Bangladesh has filed a federal lawsuit here in the United States accusing this Filipino bank of facilitating this $81 million in theft. Of course, after the money went to the bank, the Rizal Commercial Bank Corp. in in Manila, the money disappeared. So it's going to be interesting to see if the Central Bank of Bangladesh can uh, garner uh, re-garner their funds. It's certainly uh, a story that's a cautionary tale uh, for everyone. And the thing I got from it is if you get a very strange or unusual request uh, on Thursday or Friday afternoon, uh, you might want to hold that over the weekend. That sounds like good advice, Tom. Um, so here's a question I have, have Jay. Why is tennis so susceptible to corruption? Uh, we've got a great piece that's very engaging that uh, has come to us from bbc.com. And then we also have a couple companion articles from Ross Evans over at the Global Anti-Corruption blog. And, um, you, you know, to date myself, I was a real big tennis fan when uh, you had Borg and you had McEnroe and, and those folks. And I've kind of fallen out of touch with the tennis community. But the article here that we've got is just absolutely engaging and heartbreaking. And it talks about uh, an Egyptian tennis player, Kareem Hussan, who was one of the best young players in the world. And he looks set to play at the biggest tournaments with the top players in the game. And instead, he was sucked in, into one of the biggest price-fixing rings uh, yet discovered in the sport riddled with corruption. And the BBC, Simon Cox and Paul Grant used confidential documents to tell the story. And uh, basically, it goes back. Uh, it started in a hotel room in Tunisia in 2017. Um and there were investigators for Tennis Integrity Unit, which provides and uh, pro- probes corruption within the game. And they suspected that Kareem had been fixing matches. In a series of interviews over six months, he revealed how four years earlier he'd become part of one of the biggest match fixes in tennis. And what's really crazy is the, the amount of money that this happened over was basically negligible to what he could make in playing in a big tournament. And uh, basically, he was uh, playing at a small club next to a shopping mall in Sharm el-Sheikh. And he was asked, uh, the prize money for the tournament was only about $15,000 and about a quarter of the sum, which could be made at a first as a first-round loser at Wimbledon, Hassam had already won the tournament four times when he arrived there to compete in 2013. He was only 20 years old, and he was the great hope for North African tennis. Uh, what happened was uh, somebody asked him if he wanted to lose the match and win $1,000. The same player had contacted Hassam months earlier in the Cutter Open asking the same thing. Uh, after uh, giving it uh, some thought, he decided to go forward with it. And then he basically got sucked into uh, the scheme and doing this multiple times and also was somebody who was reaching out to other athletes to get them to uh, throw matches and throw points. And what's kind of interesting about tennis and the points that um, Rob, 
about is that when you play a tennis match, there are all sorts of proposition uh, proposition bets that you could make. So you could bet that somebody would double fault twice in a game, or you could bet on the number of aces that somebody is going to get in a match. And uh, although it doesn't change the final score of the game, these prop bets are something that really uh, folks have been taking on. And there's actually, uh, I guess, a big epidemic of this from the Armenian syndicate. So not only do you have um, prop wagers, but you also have the ability to bet on in-score gaming, or rather the in-game score. So by taking those two things together, it's really quite uh, easy for uh, organized crime to manipulate games. And um, it's just, it was a page turner when I read it, and it's just so um, sad that, you know, an athlete who's 20 years old makes one bad decision. And that one bad decision leads to him being banned from tennis by life. Um, Tom, anything you want to add on that one? No, uh, what I really, um, I don't want to say enjoyed because you're right. It's just a, a heartbreaking story, but it really shows the pressure points that can come in, and and I, I really had wondered why tennis was more susceptible uh, to this type of uh, corruption as opposed to others. You certainly have an event where it's an individual athletic performance, uh, mano y mano, or doubles, dubles v dubles, unlike team <laughs> sports with uh, basketball or football or, or you name the sport. Uh, golf doesn't seem to uh, have these same sort of uh, issues, even though obviously there it's a individual competition and you have uh, uh, events below the, the pro uh, PGA tour level as well. So uh, a very, a very heartbreaking story, but also I thought a great analysis uh, by both the BBC and Ross Evans uh, about why tennis is so susceptible to this uh, going forward. So, Jay, I know you think a lot about, and indeed AMI, affiliated monitors. Oh, did we mention they're celebrating their 15th anniversary this uh, this year? Um, if we didn't, uh, happy 15th birthday, AMI. You think a lot about uh, culture. And um, I saw an interesting piece about how to assess toxic culture. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, this. Uh, it seems that we usually have – at least one thing coming to us uh, each week. This is a really great blog uh, from NYU, the Compliance and Enforcement blog. And uh, hopefully I don't uh, butcher these names too badly, but it comes to us from Benjamin Van Rouge, Adam Fine, which is easy to say, and Judy Vandergraaff. And uh, basically they take a look at detoxing corporate culture, how to assess toxic cultural events. And, um, Following recent major scandals, there is now growing recognition among corporate boards and beyond that truly changing corporate misconduct means addressing endemic toxic elements within the cultures. And they take a look at um, basically, I think it's seven different uh, elements that uh, are exhibited by uh, toxic culture. And uh, some of these uh, events that they look at include BE's uh, polluting and unsafe oil practices, 
VW's well-known emission scandal and our good bank, um, Wells Fargo, that we just spoke about. And uh, it's a quick read, but I'd just like to highlight uh, these different toxic elements. Uh, the first one they uh, look at is strain. If the working environment puts too much stress on employees and treats them poorly or sets unrealistic targets, as in the Wells Fargo case, employees may, be, may respond by violating logs. The second toxic element is obstructive communication, the inability for staff and management to speak out and be heard. Next is normalization of deviancy, and this happens when there is little to no organizational response to violations within the company, and as rule-breaking behavior begins to occur with seeming impunity, it becomes viewed as just a normal part of business. The fourth toxic element is blame shifting, and this occurs when companies blame rule breaking on rogue employees instead of uh, actually taking, uh, you know, putting the blame where it falls. The fifth element is, neut is neutralization. We see this happening when after a scandal is exposed, corporate leaders and public appearances justify what happened using what criminologists call techniques of neutralization to reduce shame and guilt. And the last two are opportunity. Criminologists have shown how context affects opportunities for crime. A key issue here is complexity and dynamism at the company. Spreading decision-making power reduces the ability of successful oversight by giving people in the forum more power to make bad decisions. And the last element, the seventh element, is corporate cognitive dissonance. That while tone at the top, for example, may be articulated through corporate values, often this proclaims a deep and profound commitment to compliance. Yet while the tone at the top is one of commitment, the practices at the bottom may be sustaining uh, misconduct. So these seven elements of a toxic culture play a key role in organizational crime and misconduct. Ongoing research further operationalizes these elements into a risk assessment tool that can be used to diagnose toxicity within to the two types of organizations. So it's a, a real thoughtful piece, and we uh, def definitely re recommend you check it out in the uh, show notes. Uh, last up, again, uh, another uh, story that's been in the news for the past several weeks. Uh, tell us about uh, how uh, a partner, a never-Trump Covington Partner won and then lost a lucrative ZTE monitorship. This comes to us from uh, Ryan Barber, who has an excellent weekly column coming to us from ALM. So, so Tom, what are your thoughts on this article about ZTE? Yeah, this was a really disturbing uh, article uh, because it demonstrated that Wilbur Ross and the Department of Commerce may have violated federal law in uh, ditching a previously vetted and um, selected monitor, uh, one that was eminently well qualified for someone who really didn't meet the criteria at all. Um, the um, case involved the ZTE monitorship. Uh, the Department of Commerce was going to have its own monitor put in place. Peter Lichtenbaum at Covington and Burling, well-known firm, um, had a long negotiations with the Department of Commerce, had a full team in place ready to, to take it on. Indeed, it was so far along that not only he had signed the contract, but the uh, a press release was drafted 
the day the press release was to be issued, uh, the Department of Commerce pulled it uh, simply because he had had the temerity to criticize Trump before uh, he became president. They selected uh, someone else, uh, Roscoe Howard. Um, this was really a, a very disturbing article, Jay. And um, if these allegations are true, uh, it completely politicizes the monitorship process. One of the things that is important in the monitorship process is the independence and the integrity of the monitor. If we now have uh, toadies lining up uh, to uh, to buy these monitorships, it's going to significantly decrease their value. It's going to significantly uh, de- depress the value and the trust that people have in the monitorship process. So uh, pretty disturbing article, uh, very bad actions uh, and really in bad faith by the uh, Department of Commerce. If he was, if Lichtenbaum was so qualified that not only was uh, he agreed to, his team was agreed to, press release drafted announcing it and he was all ready to go and it was pulled because he exercised his uh, First Amendment right uh, in the United States uh, to comment upon political candidates. Uh, that's a very sad commentary uh, on Wilbur Ross specifically and the Commerce Department. So uh, anyway, uh, Jay, I had a really interesting podcast series this week. Um, and it was hosted, uh, it was on Connected Compliance. And this is not Compliance Convergence, but this is actually connecting compliance through the disparate corporate functions. It was uh, sponsored by GAN Integrity. Uh, I took a look at, uh, with Valerie Charles, we explained what is disconnected compliance. Uh, GAN Integrity CEO Thomas Sehested explained his version and vision for connected compliance. We had uh, Peter Chang, who's the customer success officer, about constructing a connected compliance program. We had uh, Martin Albertson, the uh, CIO, or rather the He's the tech guy at uh, GAN Integrity. Talked about tech and compliance. It was a really interesting podcast. Then Valerie uh, Charles uh, kind of brought us home by talking about connected compliance and the human element. All of these are available on uh, the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, JD Supra, uh, Panoply, uh, YouTube. And as everyone who listened to the start of this podcast knows, Jay, this podcast, the FCPA Compliance Report is on Spotify, and these are on Spotify, and this podcast is on Spotify. So if you like to consume your uh, podcast via uh, Spotify or iTunes, we are the guys for you. Uh, this podcast series uh, with Gan Integrity is on Spotify, as is This Week in FCPA. Uh, Jay, I think it's only appropriate that uh, we tell uh, our audience that uh, if you're going to be in San Diego uh, next week, we hope you will come down and join us because uh, Jay and I are on a panel at the Ascent Compliance Supply Chain Conference, uh, February 12th and 13th um, in San Diego. It's uh, put on by Ascent Compliance. Jay and I are on a panel with Jared Connor. We're going to talk about the future of anti-bribery and anti-corruption, uh, take a look at some due diligence, take a look at corporate culture. Jared is a uh, former colleague of mine from the Red Flag Group, and he's now at Ascent. Jared is passionate about corporate social responsibility. And so the three of us, I think, are going to have a fascinating discussion, frankly, because of our disparate you know, professional backgrounds and uh, the way we would look at a problem. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to uh, joining the stage with you finally, uh, Jay. Yeah, it'll be great to have you in uh, Southern California. 
the other thing I wanted to thank you for, Tom, uh, as we just talked about the five-part podcast that Todd, uh, that Tom did last week for GAN Integrity. Uh, next week, Tom has put together a, a real treat. Uh, we are celebrating, as we said earlier in the podcast, uh, the 15th anniversary of Affiliated Monitors. Uh, Tom has written uh, a couple wonderful blog post this week. The first one is called An Idea Grows into AMI, which came out yesterday. And this morning, he followed it up with the marriage of independent monitors and C&E programs. So I, I know that um, Tom has been a big fan of A&I, AMI. And uh, as people know, we are a sponsor of this week in FCPA. But uh it's going to be, uh, if you have some time to listen to this, it's really interesting to look at the vision of AMI's founder, Vin DiCiani, and how he found a problem that he thought people were not getting treated fairly for uh, for infractions within the medical community, and how over a 15-year period, Vin's uh, vision has uh, turned into uh, affiliated monitors. So, Tom, thanks so much for the blogs. We appreciate it, and we look forward to uh, listening to next week's podcast. So, uh, I guess we've got it all. We we've got uh, our uh, appearance next week in San Diego, and um, Tom. Besides that, uh, you want to take it home first. So, on behalf of Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors, this is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, uh, thanking you for listening to This Week in FCPA, episode 141, for the week ending February 8th, 2019, the We're on Spotify edition. Jay, I look forward to our conversation next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to episode 141 of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I take a look at next week's top compliance and ethics stories which catch our eye. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.